Greetings and welcome to another episode of Soundography, a crash course in music, one band at a time. I'm Brian Ibbett. And I am eight miles high. Look at you, already referencing our our subject today, uh, a band that um, we've we've touched on very gently, very tangentially, <laughs> gently and tangentially, <laughs> when we did our Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young episode. Uh, that's right, I'm talking about the birds. They probably came up when we talked about the zombies, too, because they're part of that same kind of musical uh, movement era. For sure. They're in that folk meets rock, influenced by the British invasion, things like that. And, and that's a really good comparison. I mean, I'm sure at some point they all played, listen to what the flower people say. <laughs> oh, if only. <laughs> if only I'd have covers of all these bands doing that Spinal Tap song. It'd be great. This is a band that was formed in, 19, in uh, 1964 in Los Angeles by Jim, a.k.a. Roger McGuinn, Gene Clark, and David Crosby. All of them were experienced musicians, and they'd spent time in the folk circuit. Uh, Roger McGuinn had worked as a songwriter in the Brill Building with Bobby Darin. McGuinn was inspired by the Beatles, which led him down his own musical path. And I'm sure they did that eat at Joe's. E-A-O's. <laughs> you're going you're gonna to pull every Spinal Tap yeah. reference you can. Or, uh, that, or Mighty Wind, because it's more of a Mighty Wind. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That was a Mighty Wind yeah. thing, right? The, the folk. Yeah. The, the folkers, or are they them? There, there's the new uh, folk singers, and there was the um, new street. Oh gosh, I haven't watched Mighty yeah. Wind in a while. I know I haven't either, and I remember the, the, it wasn't the Mighty Folkers or something. <laughs> <laughs> like, I like I like it it the fact that they say a Mighty Wind is blowing you and me. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I need to watch that again. That is such a great. Yeah, uh, I actually uh, was uh, thinking about watching it. Just I was watching. I was thinking about watching it sometime real, real soon. Well, let's, let's watch movie. it for exactly, yeah, because it fits. Oh, it's yeah. a, you know, it's a whole music thing. Yeah, I'll stop. <laughs> I'll, I promise I'll stop. All right. And you'll hear me interchange Jim and Roger McGuinn. He was uh, known as, as Jim McGuinn, James McGuinn, up until 1967. And that is his real first name. And then he started going by Roger, which we all know him as today. By the way, the Bird's first initial name, the, the name they first started out as, was the Jet Set. It wasn't even the Bird's. Uh, through connections from uh, David Crosby, they obtained a manager and access to a studio. It was in this time that they perfected their kind of mix of Beatles-esque, Dylan, pop, folk, a smidgen of this, Hybrid. a dash of yeah. that kind of musical style. And it's funny, when we get to my picks, there's there's one song in particular, it feels like they just went a little bit of country and a little bit of rock and roll, and you put them mm. in a blender and you spit out our song. They were absolutely right on that line. And some some albums went further over one side or the other, and we'll talk about that. But it, it's like it's sure. what Donnie Marie sang about. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and neither, neither one of them was really no. either of those things. No. <laughs> <laughs> They're a little bit milk toast. Uh, demos from this time would later be collected in pre-flight in the beginning, the pre-flight sessions and pre-flight plus. These were all collections of some of that jet set. And pre-flight stuff. plus is available through iTunes. No, it's not a streaming service. It's a streaming yeah. service, yes. That's, That's right. Thank you. Michael Clark was brought in as a drummer, and when he was hired, he didn't own a drum set and had mostly been playing congas around San Francisco uh, for tips, probably. In a one-off single from uh, Electra with Electra, they released Please Let Me Love You and Don't Be Long. And uh, this failed. <laughs> Not so good. In the fall of 1964, they heard Bob Dylan's Mr. Tambourine Man, Mr. Tambourine Man, and felt that it would make a great song for them to cover. In the jingle jangle morning, I'll come following you. Take me for a trip upon your magic swirling ship. Oh, my senses. Initially, they did not like the song, but with change arrangements and a new time signature, it kind of started to work out for them. Yeah, and, and became so iconic that you don't even think about Bob Dylan's original. You think about the Birds version, Mr. Tambourine Man, or or Shatner's version. So that's the thing I think that Dylan, it's hard because there are very few songs that when I think of them that he wrote that I've heard other versions of, 
he's not the first person I always go to, except for maybe Nashville Skyline. Oh, really? But mm-hmm. there are so many other songs that he wrote that became iconic signature songs for other people. Yeah. I mean, Jimi Hendrix is all along the Watchtower. I'd even say that, uh, you know, not that you know him for any other music, but the Soggy Bottom Boys and uh, uh, Oh Brother Where Art Thou, that Man of Constant Sorrow. Mm-hmm. You're never going to think of that song and say, oh, yeah, it's a Bob Dylan song. You think of it as George Clooney and John Turturro and Tim Blake Nelson singing around a microphone. Yeah, it, it, it's really interesting. I think Dylan is a fantastic songwriter and he had a unique way of performing and you know, he's an icon in music. I'm not going to take that away from him, but he's a much better songwriter when other people take his stuff than when he sometimes takes it and does it himself. Yeah. I mean, you could even just go so far as to say he's an excellent songwriter that other people, that that he's able to give other people so much material to work with. Yeah. You just have to, you know, if you've got an appreciation for Bob Dylan's voice, then it's like, oh yeah, of course he's, he's, the perfect one to sing those songs. I feel but. like Dylan has a lot in common with, oh, we covered him first season that died. Um, uh, hmm. Crooner, man, Casio, keyboard, uh, everyone. Oh, <laughs> Leonard Cohen. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very much so. Uh, Leonard Cohen, right. Great, great comparison because Leonard Cohen's material often works better for other singers than it does if you're not a fan of Leonard Cohen's voice. And he had two very distinct voices, right? I mean, yeah. there's the very thin, reedy voice from early Leonard Cohen and then the very, very deep baritone that yeah. he finally grew yeah. into. And Bob Dylan had, you know, the Bob Dylan of now and traveling Wilburys era and that sort of thing is a very different Bob Dylan than the very first original stuff that he released. Yes. And Sorry about that. I had to bring that up because we'd never really had a conversation about Dylan like that before. So that's why I brought it up. It was a very appropriate tangent. So I'm glad you did. Uh, after the Mr. Tambourine Man uh, cover, Dylan was invited to the studio to hear them playing it. And he was really excited about the direction that they had taken with it. After seeing A Hard Day's Night, the birds went out well, or the jet set went out and bought the same gear that they saw the Beatles using in the film. With some personnel additions at at, uh, base, they were ready to enter the studio under a new contract with Columbia Records. During a Thanksgiving dinner, they changed their name to the Birds. It kept the idea of flight, uh, but they also added the misspelling, kind of like the Beatles did, to add mystique. Yeah, which is hilarious, right? I mean, I guess you could say Led, uh, Led Zeppelin and... Def Leppard did that with their their playful spellings of things. Yeah, I think I think that playful spelling has always been an aspect of rock bands. I don't sure. think it's because yeah. I think and I make the joke about mystique, but I think there's really something to it because it separates them from that the word or whatever it is. But it mm-hmm. also gives this air of ah, oh, we're cheeky and we're clever. Yeah, and it also you know they they accurately predicted that the internet would make it very difficult to search for birds. Yeah, uh, with with an I and and find their their music, but if you do with a Y, it's the first thing that comes up. So they accurately predicted the internet very well. SEO yeah. was strong back in '64. Totally was. Uh, Nineteen sixty-five, they released "Mr. Tambourine Man," the album. This recording included the Wrecking Crew on the recording because the band hadn't fully gelled yet. So Roger McGuinn technically was the only real bird on the recording. Crosby also did join in on vocals some too. So that counts. The use of session musicians on the recording continued to haunt the band because people thought all of their music was done by session cats. By the way, there's uh, the song there, Feel a Whole Lot Better. It's such a great song. It's one of my favorites, but it's a greatest hit, so I couldn't include it on my playlist. But damn, this, this right out of the gate, this first album is so good. And also, if we're talking about movies, and we we will definitely cover this one some other time because I think we both watched it recently, but that Wrecking Crew documentary is uh, a must-watch. Yes. It's so good. And I think we've both watched it probably in the last 18 months, so there's no way we're going to watch it again right now. Not right away, but it is it is really good and definitely worth a watch. Uh, the Birds started a regular gig on the Sunset Strip, and this is where they really started to come together. Come together. Ha ha. More, more Beatles. Ha ha. Uh, the jangly compressed 12 string and the harmonies on the release became synonymous with folk rock. And uh, frankly, it kind of still is. I mean, and, and as, as, 
has poked fun at and done very successfully in the film Mighty Wind. Totally is. By the way, the Folksman is the uh, the, That's it, the, the Folksman. Made spinal step, uh, final tap, yeah, Spinal Tap members. Did I say Final Tap? That'd be really funny. That's the death metal band that they they spawned. <laughs> it's final. It's final. That they're <laughs> the death metal cover band. <laughs> that jangly sound, by the way, that uh, Roger McGuinn is so connected with comes from that Rickenbacker guitar that is so so entrenched with his sound. Tom Petty used one as well, and that's why there's a, a lot of comparisons uh, in voice and in style from Roger McGuinn and Tom Petty. Uh, within just a few months, the Mr. Tambourine Man song was a worldwide smash. It was the first kind of pop in the folk boom of the 1960s. I believe it, because it, it, again, you know, we talked about that line that gets straddled so much by this band, and when you've got so many powerhouses in this band, they all bring something different. And they, in this case, they just happen to all bring different genres with them. We talked to, I mean, I mean, it, uh, we're bringing up Mighty Wind a lot because it kind of, it kind of matters, but, <laughs> no, but you yeah. know, when that movie came out, I kind of forgotten that folk music was an actual viable, popular form of music in the late sixties and mid to totally late sixties. And then yeah. when I'm doing this, I, it, it made me think about that and realize that, man, they just nailed, they nailed that whole scene kind of thing. Mm-hmm, and and mm-hmm. they kind of made it, I don't know, it was, they did a great job bringing it all back in kind of a, remember the time that, you know, country and folk and pop music were all the same thing. Right. And they could appeal to different audiences and sell those albums yeah. to different audiences yeah. as, opposed, as opposed to a straight, nothing but folk artist yeah. or, or rock artist, that sort of thing. Uh, as a matter of fact, the phrase folk rock was created to describe them by the press. So it's because of them. That full album, by the way, Mr. Tambourine Man reached number six on the U.S. charts and it contained reworkings of folk songs and songs that were written by the band. Yeah, on there they cover what's the one that's like, I'll be seeing you or the Until We Meet Again. It's such a different take on that song. It's great. It's so, so great. And and these guys were the first kind of band to rise up and challenge the, as an American band, to rise up and be a challenge to the Beatles musical supremacy in the charts. As they should, right? Uh, the the Beatles needed somebody to kind of take them down a little bit. <laughs> well, it's because the Stones were not in the same class. They were a different type of music. Had a different kind of. Plus, they were also another British invasion band. Yeah, right. So, so like, they needed uh, someone who was in the same kind of ballpark to kind of challenge them for musical supremacy. Another single written by Dylan was released. You're going to find a lot of Dylan and Bird's stuff uh, together. All I really want to do. The song was changed drastically by the band to fit their own style. What's weird is that Cher also released a cover of this. Hers reached number 15, theirs peaked 40. However, in the UK, it was the opposite. wonder what it was about the Birds version that didn't do as well over here, but did better in the UK where, you know, they're both American performers. So it's kind of interesting. Uh, McGuinn, Clark, and Crosby all took turns at lead vocals and created a style that kept them, kept them fresh sounding. And as a live act, though, they were poorly reviewed, partly because they appeared aloof and unapproachable. And because of their inconsistent performances because of the excessive amounts of marijuana that was being consumed by the band. Their first tour was billed as America's answers to the beat America's answer to the Beatles. They were not and the British press was not kind to it. When you set yourself up for that, all you can do is fail. You mean like when someone says you're bigger than Jesus? I mean, you got nowhere to go but down after that statement. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> now he was talking about how I, you know, I know I, I know what he was saying. <laughs> Ooh, that uh, Peter Jackson documentary is going to be coming out soon. Oh, yeah. Which, which yeah, yeah, I think yeah. talks about that. Can't wait for that. Well, I feel but, like we should be doing a lot more Patreon shows. <laughs> I feel like it. Yeah. Maybe we just switched to doing those. Oh, yeah. 
The Beatles did, however, see them as creative competitors and name them as their favorite American act. You know, there was all this rivalry, perceived rivalry between bands like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, Beatles and the Birds. But in actuality, they they were all kind of big fans of well, each other. Well, I also know that there was this kind of competitive call and response with the Beatles and the Beach Boys, too. Yeah, right. Between Pet Sounds and Sgt. Peppers. Yeah. And for sure. Yeah. And and again, they were all they were all uh they were all friendly. Well, I don't see them uh, going all West Side Story and, and duking it out <laughs> of the streets. When you're a beach boy, you're a beach boy all the way. <laughs> yeah. In nineteen sixty-five, they released the album Turn Turn Turn, which of course featured the single of uh, the same name. This was released ahead of the album and was their second US number one. The tone and the message of the song kind of hit home with people because of their feelings of political unrest and their opinions toward the Vietnam War. And there's also a a biblical connection, right? Because it's Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know the the. There is yes, yeah. There's a thing that comes from, but that whole a time to reap, a time to sow, and all that stuff. The album reached number seventeen on U.S. charts and number eleven in the U.K. This album put them in the conversation with bands like the Beach Boys and the Stones the Beatles as a creative musical force, which they already kind of had been in that conversation, but this kind of solidified their stance. Which is really good for them. The songs on the album were, again, a mix of originals, reworked folk songs, and Dylan covers. (laughs) Clark was starting to step out as their primary writer of original songs. Uh, She Don't Care About Time, The World Turns All Around Her, and Set You Free This Time are all regarded and some of the best works of the genre. Now who's standing at the door remembering the days before and asking please be kind It isn't how it was set up to be but I've set you free this time In December of 1965, they recorded an original song called Eight Miles High. Columbia refused to release this version because it wasn't recorded in one of their studios. The band had to re-record it, and when it was released, it was seen as a huge leap for the band and the first in the genre of psychedelic rock. That's two new genres if you're keeping score. (laughs) This is true. Uh, There were other groups, by the way, tinkering around with uh, these genres, but this was a move from folk to a more psychedelic influence on folk music. So it was acid. And banjos. Right. Yes, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> and and uh, all, all covered with a nice little smoky uh, marijuana sound. In February of 1966, The Times Are A-Changing EP was released. Yeah, that's a Bob Dylan song right there. Uh, and also in 1966, Fifth Dimension, uh, the album was released. This album showed many Indian influences, like the droning quality of the vocals and musical influences of Ravi Shankar. By the way, the song Eight Miles High, which was uh, on, on this release as well, was banned by U.S. radio stations because of allegations that the lyrics advocated drug use. Well, I don't see it. Really? <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> the band stated... <laughs> That it was about airplanes and the trip they had to, uh, on their tour to London. See the notes of about lots of pot use above. <laughs> we'll actually talk a little bit more about this uh, later on. There's an interesting story that goes along with this. The pot that use? Single, uh, the song Eight Miles High being oh, about a, a, yeah. plane, a plane trip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the single didn't reach the top 10, uh, but the album consisted of songs leaning on raga and jazz. Uh, Clark had left the band, so Hillman stepped into the role of the third vocalist. And this album, as you can guess, wasn't as successful as the last two. Later that year, they released the actual Eight Miles High EP. Let's just milk that song for everything it's worth. It is their it, it is their Blue Monday. It might be, yeah. Yeah, we'll see what, what happens when we get to stairways to or the stairway to heaven. Right song, now cause... it feels like they're right now it feels like they're Blue Monday. 
<laughs> Might be. 1967, they released Younger Than Yesterday. They brought in a new producer, Gary Usher, who was known for innovative work in the studio and really worked well with them as they moved into an even more creative and adventurous period for them. Yeah, he ushered them into a new sound. Ah, I see what you did there, because it's his last name, you see. So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star was the first single from this album and was a sharp jab at manufactured groups like the Monkees. This song has gone on to be covered by a ton of people like Tom Petty and Patti Smith. It has. And it's funny when you hear him talking in the song about uh, becoming spokespeople for plastic wear. And I can't think of any band that's ever been approached to be a... Uh, <laughs> oh, I don't know. I can see Mickey. I can see Mickey Dolan doing Tupperware. Could, uh, could you? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I'm really trying to come up with some sort of daydream believer and uh, you know, burp your Tupperware connection. I just can't do it. I don't know. I can't do it. This this album, by the way, Younger Than you know, Yesterday, mixed folk, psychedelic, country, and Western into the writing. So Nas X was just, he's not new. Right. No, this has been, it's been done. Yeah. It's been done. In the summer of 1967, they recorded and released Lady Friend. It was written by Crosby, and it's been called a work of great maturity and was the rockingest song to date. However, it didn't fare well on the charts, and Crosby blamed it on the production and mixing. Their first of many, believe me, greatest hits albums released in 1967 as well. And it was a huge success, reaching number six on album sales charts. This went on to be one of their biggest selling albums of theirs. Doesn't surprise me. And when you go through those first like three albums or four albums and a handful of EPs, 90% of what would be considered their greatest hits came from that, that era. Yeah, there was a definite change in, I don't want to call it quality, but there was a, there was a change after that first Greatest Hits came out. Something something wasn't there is, right. There is, yeah. Uh, 1968, they released The Notorious Bird Brothers, and the lead single from this album was a song that was one of the very rare covers done by the band Queen, uh, Going Back. And it only reached number 89 on the charts. Now there are no games To only pass the time No more electric trains No more trees to climb But thinking young and growing older Is no sin That's pretty bad. This album saw the use of uh, pedal steel guitar for the first time but it wouldn't be the last. This was an album that saw them use a lot of studio tricks like phasing and flanging uh, to change the sound even more. They were, they were seeing the, the studio as an instrument as well as a recording area. Even more psychedelic, yeah. Uh, this record didn't sell well, but the critics thought very highly of it. The years 1967 and 1968 saw the band go through some personnel drama. When it was all done, Crosby had left and was working with Stills and Nash. And McGuinn and Hillman were the only two left. There is a lot to cover there. Uh, they were uh, like they were bent because Crosby played with the Birds and with Buffalo Springfield at the same, at the Monterey Pop Festival. Oh right, yeah, he was he was like like two timing and even three timing if you add uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Yeah, he too. was he was he was not he was splitting his time too much for them, and I feel yeah. like they probably felt like he was not uh, giving them you know even thirty three percent. Of him. <laughs> 33 and a third percent. Yeah. You know, what's funny is you can't really think of a another artist today who does that, who's like with three bands all simultaneously. There's there's people who pop in and, and help out a band here and a band there. But I mean, Crosby was, was a member of all three of these bands. So and, I can um, think of a, per, a person who's a member of two bands. Currently, actively? Yeah, currently, actively. Stone Sour and Slipknot is Corey Taylor. Okay. But those are two, not three. Right. And yeah, and and uh, and this is back in the 60s when you're releasing two or three albums a year. So it's like multiply that times three. Yeah. We covered Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, and they were dropping, in, I think one year they dropped three albums in one year. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a crank it out mentality back then. And so... You know, that could effectively put you on nine albums a year if you're each of those three bands are releasing three albums a year. Crazy. Hillman's cousin Kevin Kelly was brought in as a drummer, and the trio went on a college tour 
in support of the album. Soon, Graham Parsons was brought in as a keyboard player, but he soon moved to guitar. And shortly after he joined the band, he started pushing his own musical and creative agenda towards country. And we see that. Uh, we see that very shortly. I was going to say we see that with this next album, but there's another uh, bit of information here. While in Nashville recording the next album, they played at the Grand Old Opry. Since they were considered hippies and long hairs, the crowd was not really super supportive of them. <laughs> Wow, that's surprising. What a weird, weird uh, take. It's like Jethro Tull winning the best new heavy metal band at the uh, MTV Awards. Yep. It just doesn't seem to fit. Or yep. at the Grammys. Yep. I guess it yep. wasn't the MTV Too Award. soon. Too soon. Yeah. In 1968, they released Sweetheart of the Rodeo. Truck drawer, truck, truck, <laughs> drugstore truck driving man is about Nashville-based DJ Ralph Emery uh, after they appeared on his radio show. Parsons continued to try and challenge McGuinn for the leadership role because of a contract issue, all of his vocals for You Don't Miss Your Water, The Christian Life, and 100 Years From Now had to be replaced. He one of them called Graham, per- Graham Parsons in the birds. That's a, bil- a bold move for somebody who comes in after a band has already been established for a few years and had a lot of big hits to come in and say, uh, no, I want you to change the the name of the band and the whole direction of the band and, and all that. It's, yeah, uh, yeah, it's 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 not a good look. No, it really isn't. That's that's a flex. <laughs> <laughs> After a performance at Royal Albert Hall in London, Parsons quit the band. He found a little success after he left with the Flying Burrito Brothers, and then he died in 1973 at the age of 26 due to an overdose. Ooh, man, if he could have held out one more year, he would have been then at, in that uh, 27, club. 27 Club. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, this album was released uh, eight weeks, by the way, after Parsons left the band. And this it's his his huge influence of it is this whole country direction of uh, this album. The single of the Dylan cover, You Ain't Going Nowhere, did just the opposite. It, uh, it saw some chart success. Although the album didn't fare well on its release, it's become a landmark album, setting the tone for the entire country rock movement of the 70s and even some of the alt-country rock of the uh, of the 90s. It doesn't surprise me. Now, how many genres are we up to I at don't this know. point? They, they, they've got a whole book. But just think, Shania Twain actually owes her success to the birds. That's great to think about. Clarence White was brought in to replace Parsons. In 1969, they released the album Dr. Birds and Mr. Hyde. Again, there were some lineup changes, and in the end, Roger McGuinn was the last original member left. The recording session saw them mixing country-tinged music with psychedelic influences. The split sound uh, matched the title of the album. Get it? Oh, for Dr. sure. Yeah, because, yeah. Dr. Bird, Dr. isn't that Bird. Justin's, isn't that the That's name Justin's of Justin's Bird? Yeah, Just, Justin's Bird is Dr. Bird, yeah. yeah. But he spells it with an I, I'm guessing. I don't know. Uh, because of all the lineup changes, uh, McGuinn sang lead on the entire album. They recorded a cover of Lay Lady Lay, another Bob Dylan, but it didn't do well. The producer decided to put a female vocal choir in the mix. Lay Lady Lay Lay across my big brass bed band didn't know about this until it was released and they saw this as an embarrassing addition to the song. As a result, they got a new producer. 1969, they released Ballad of Easy Rider. This album consolidated and streamlined the band's country rock sound. Mostly consisted of cover versions and traditional material, along with three original songs. The first single was the title track, issued in October 1969 in America and reaching number 65 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. That's where I want to be Flow, river flow Let your waters wash down Take me from this road 
Ballad of Easy Rider was written to be the theme song for Easy Rider. However, the Bird's recording of the song doesn't appear in the film, and an acoustic version credited to Roger McGuinn alone was used instead. In 1970, they released the album uh, Untitled. This was a double LP set with one live music and the other a new studio album. It peaked at number 40 on the charts and was well-received by critics. It contained a 16-minute version of Eight Miles High. Uh, Oof, that's like two minutes per mile. Yeah. It's, a, it's an exponential <laughs> song. That's right. Exactly. A uh, new studio album included songs that were meant for a planned country rock musical. Chestnut Mare was released as a single and did well on radio, even though it charted poorly in the States and it reached number one in the UK. Stony Ridge after this chestnut mare. Been chasing her for weeks. Well, I'd catch a glimpse of her every once in a while. Taking her meal. So let's later. think about the birds writing a country rock musical that would might with the potential of being either in a movie or on stage. Right. Like a who Tommy kind of thing. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Weird because that doesn't even seem like it was the original direction McGuinn had for the band. That seems like what Parsons wanted, but uh, yeah, interesting. In 1971, they released the album Bird Maniacs. The music on this album was underdeveloped because of touring and pressure to release a new album. And it is considered the worst album in the catalog. Like, I didn't even enjoy it. Yeah, I enjoyed one song on it that actually even made my my list. And I wonder if I liked that song so much because of all the stuff that was around it. I sometimes know, we'll I see. like things, sometimes it's not like, you know, it's how sometimes heavier songs sound heavier if they're crammed up next to a ballad. Yeah. And sometimes yeah. songs sound better on an album when they're surrounded by garbage. So maybe maybe something to it. The band left the mixing to their producer and they brought in Paul Polina to arrange strings, horns, and a choir into the mixing. Which is funny because that that the whole choir was the reason they fired mm-hmm. their previous producer. Yeah. This was done reportedly without the band's consent. The band heard this and demanded that the album be remixed and the new stuff be cut, and the label refused. In October of 1971, The Bird's Greatest Hits Volume 2 was released. The title was misleading because only Chestnut Mare had charted, and that was in the UK. So it's The Beatle or The Bird's Greatest Hit and a bunch of other songs to <laughs> fill them up. Hey, that's what Dream Theater called their album. It is. Yeah, yeah, it totally is. I kind of knew as soon as I said that, that that we would get that reference. In 1971 also, they released Farther Along. This reviewed only a little better than Bird Maniacs. Uh, this was more of a move to 1950s-style rock and away from almost everything else. America's Great National Pastime was released as a single kind of protest song. The five original members did get back together for selected tour dates in 1972. And the next year, 1973's Just Plain Birds was released. This album was released in March and a tour was talked about, but it never happened. Uh, This album reached number 20 on the album charts. Full Circle was released as a single, but it failed to chart. Funny how the circle turns around. First you're up. Then you're down again Though the circle takes what it may give Each time around uh, some later releases in 2000, you got Live at the Fillmore, which was recorded back in February of 1969. In 2008, the album Live at Royal Albert Hall was released. That was from a recording from 1971. And in 2011, The Lost Broadcast, which had probably some of those radio appearances that we talked about earlier. Hammond, tell us about some of the statistics and general notes for the birds. Okay, there are about 50 compilation best of albums. We only listed a couple. 
I'm not going to, we could have done a whole show just on those. <laughs> we could have, yes. And so when we decide to link to something, it'll be one of the later ones that has a full catalog expose kind of thing. I don't know which one we want to pick, but it'll be one of those later ones that has everything on it. Jefferson Airplane, yeah. Love, and Buffalo Springfield all cite the birds as early inspiration. Funny Buffalo Springfield, since it contains one of the bird members, yeah, well, citing them as an inspiration. Nothing is more inspirational than having one of the primary songwriters in your band. I stand corrected. <laughs> uh, bands, like the Eagle, <laughs> bands like the Eagles, Tom Petty, and the Bengals all cite them also as uh, inspiration. Which yeah, is weird because Tom Petty yeah. and Bob Dylan are cut from almost the same cloth. It's just like 20 years apart. Totally. And and Bob Dylan and, uh, I'm sorry, not uh, uh, Tom Petty and Roger McGuinn, again, like I mentioned yeah. earlier, also yeah. cut from the same cloth. Yep. The Bengals, interesting. The Bengals and the Jangles. Let's talk about their Stairway to Heaven songs. This is if you get to see the band, if you got to see the band in their heyday touring. What song do you think is going to be the one that you're guaranteed to hear? Hammond, what are our choices? Okay, so I picked Master, Mr. Tambourine Man because it's so linked to them. For sure. I picked yeah. Jesus is all, Just Alright, which I got comments about later in our show. So you want to be a rock and roll star, and then I picked Eight Miles High because if you do a 16 minutes version of a song, then it, if you do that, it has to be your Stairway to Heaven song. I would think so, yeah. Mr. Tambourine Man would have been my guess, but Guess what? You're absolutely right. Eight Miles High, number one, very, very close behind with only four less plays in concert is Mr. Tambourine Man, followed by So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star, Jesus is Just All Right, You Ain't Going Nowhere, Lover of the Bayou, Mr. Spaceman, Turn, 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 uh, My Back Pages, and Hold It, rounding out the top ten. And when you touch down, you'll find that it's Lots of covers in this list. Oh, uh, yeah. Not just Bob Dylan, but uh, Pete Seeger, of course, for Turn, 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 Lead Belly, The Band, Little Feet. I mean, it's all, it's all contemporaries of theirs. Speaking of covers, this is where we talk about uh, covers that we would have liked to hear the band perform had they been around when some of uh, these these later songs and artists uh, were with us, or I'm sorry, or were popular. Man, you you always pick such good ones. That's such a good one. Holy cow. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great to hear? My pick oh. is Mr. Jones by the Counting Crows. And uh, Bravo. I think you win. You. I think you win the cover game. I mean, that's Bravo. <laughs> Well, I am Coverville, Hammond. It uh, does come with the territory. <sighs> now, hearing Roger McGuinn do a cover of Mr. Jones, I think would be great. And hearing that that jangly guitar uh, in there would be so, so cool. Oh, my gosh. I'm just thinking about the the harmonies, how they do the uh, Mr. Jones. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Oh, it's, you, you've really struck on something that's kind of made me sad that it didn't happen. That it doesn't exist? Yeah. 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 Uh, what, what have you got, Hammond? So I put a lot of thought into this one. And after thinking about it, I decided that Eye in the Sky by Alan Parsons, it has all the right bones to it Good that yeah. the that the the birds could have used to build on. I mean, it's a simple mid-tempo rock. There's lots of opportunities for harmony. There's a story. There's There's imagery. There's all the things that they could do. And they could either do the more psychedelic version or a more kind of turn, turn, turn version or Mr. Tambourine version. Or they could mm -hmm. even do something with pedal steel and lean into the country. I mean, I they they really it's an open palette for them to paint on. It would be cool to hear a folk version of Eye in the Sky. And and you know, that spiritual influence yeah. kind of would and also would play I mean more. the whole thing is that he he wanted uh he was fascinated with, with airplanes and flying. So the eye of right. the, the idea of Eye in the Sky kind of leans into that as well. Totally does. Good choice. Very yeah. good choice. <laughs> Uh, let's get to our playlist. This is where we each pick a few songs that if you couple with one of those myriad greatest hits albums, you'll get a good uh, variety of stuff. And with so many greatest hits albums to choose from, it's kind of difficult to 
avoid the minefield of some of these things being in there. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll uh, say I've 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 crossed the line a couple times. And I'm not yeah. I'm not angry about it. Nope, I did as well. I'm fine with it too. The first one isn't so much a song as it is a collaboration. Uh, in the '90s, around the time of their "I Feel Possessed" uh, single. Roger McGuinn worked with Crowded House and actually formed a project called Birdhouse in which he and the three members of Crowded House covered Mr. Tambourine Man, Rock and Roll Star, and Eight Miles High. Uh, listen, they're all greatest hits, but this felt like a, a true collaboration rather than a, hey, we brought in a special guest for this song. Mr. Tambourine Man, probably the one of those three that features more of a variety of vocalists. You know, for Eight Miles High and So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star, you hear mostly Roger McGuinn on vocals with uh, Neil Finn doing backing vocals, but they trade off for Mr. Tambourine Man. So um, I think that's a clip that uh, that I think fits well here. The... Uh, other thing about this is that in their Eight Miles High, in the introduction for Eight Miles High, you actually hear Roger McGuinn saying, this is a song about traveling to London on an airplane. <laughs> 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 kind of like he's, you know, really trying to cement that that home. Yeah, and, I mean, uh, it, it, look, once you tell a lie, you have to lean into it every time it comes up. You got to double down. Yeah. Exactly. Yes, it's the it's the uh, eight mile high hill he's gonna die on. Yep. yep. Uh, second track is the only song I really liked from Sweetheart of the Rodeo, and that's "You Ain't Going Nowhere." I love these kind of, I don't know, break off, piss off kind of songs like Feel a Whole Lot Better is such a great breakup song. You Ain't Going Nowhere is kind of the kind of the same thing. The rest of the album is a little too twangy for me, but uh, I got hooked on this song by people who've covered it and the Birds version is still one of the best. It's so, so good. It's All Over Now, Baby Blue. This is from the Ballad of Easy Rider album. Look, they've done a lot of Dylan covers, a lot of Dylan covers. And aside from Mr. Tambourine Man, this one strays the furthest from the original. It's almost unrecognizable as a cover of the Bob Dylan that's all over now, Baby Blue. That's what makes it so good. Uh, talking about that Bird Maniacs album and how bad it is, this was the <laughs> song that I liked from it. Uh, I want to grow up to be a politician. And the lyrics are hilarious. It's got a really cool style to it. Uh, it's also very idealistic. It's very, you know, yeah, we kind of all would like to see a president that that uh, fits this I want to grow up to be a politician mold for sure but I'll never be scary I want to shoot guns or butter my bread I work in the towns or conservate the prairies and he can believe the future's ahead I'll give the young the right to vote as soon as they mature and finally Lost My Driving Wheel. This is from uh, Farther, a little farther on down. What's the album called? It's called Farther Along. That's what it's called. This is a late entry into the list, probably because so many of their earlier songs are are on their greatest hits albums, but I really, really dug the vibe on this album, or on this song. Dead, 
Hammond, tell me about your playlist. All right. So my first one was Mr. Spaceman. And it's funny because I forget how much the space race and that whole era of the late 60s yeah. was kind of focused on space. And they wrote a song about it. This is one little sci-fi song. But I mean, we had all these things leaning heavily into what was considered sci-fi, which was soon to become science fact. And this was this was one of those songs that I kind of like, oh, wow, this is kind of shows you how deep the the cultural zeitgeist was leaning into that kind of thing. Also, it's Mr. Blank Man, which they did kind of tend to steer into. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Tambourine Man, Mr. Spaceman. <laughs> you're, you're not wrong. <laughs> uh, another one, it's kind of like the... Uh, the oh gosh, who were they? You the folksmen, and they're singing or wishing. Oh right, yes, all the songs they did that had that in there. Yeah. Yes. So my next one is: Have you seen her face? This feels like a song that would be used in a movie as two kids, a boy and a girl, are walking down the sidewalk after school, and it's his first inklings of love. Mm. And oh, it's a it's an innocent song about first love, and I really liked it, and I wished I knew a mu- 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 music supervisor who could use this song, because it's it's really good. All right, so my third pick was King Apathy Third. This song has two very clear, distinctive styles that are crammed next to each other. And I don't know how they made it work, but man, they made it work. And this was the first time I'm like, they really are just kind of uh, putting everything they know in a blender. And I'm sure they had tons and tons and tons of songs that they went, nope, doesn't work. Even stoned. They're like, nope, that doesn't work. (laughs) But this one, it totally works. And because of the, the content of the song, it really does kind of fit because there's this two the two moods to the piece of music. The next one I picked was picked was natural harmony. This stands out more because of its placement. Uh, in the album, because we talked about that, how sometimes it's mm-hmm. it's what's where the, where what's what, around it. Exactly. Yeah. But the thing I did want to bring up about this one is it is so well produced, and it sounds sonically it holds up. It does it has an age today sonically. I was listening to it on my studio monitors, and I'm just like, wow, this is really good. Because a lot of the other stuff sounded like it gotten old. This one did not. Yeah, interesting. All right. And then I picked uh, Jesus is all right. the Doobie Brothers version of this until this very show. And yeah, I had no idea that the birds even covered it. Yeah. Funny. So I like this one a lot. Now I'm going to ask you, so did the Doobie Brothers come first or did the birds come first? The birds came first, but they weren't the first. Okay, so uh, who was before, the first? The Art Reynolds uh, singers were the first band to do Jesus is Just All Right. Um, then the birds and then the Doobie Brothers, who actually had the big hit with it. Yeah, them. I was going to say the Doobie Brothers had the huge hit. 
but uh, I had no idea, and I really like this version, like I a like, lot. I like their take. I like their take on it a lot as well. Yeah, it's it's a good, um, a good translation of the song. I mean, it's not hard. I mean, it's hard to not hear it and go the Doobie Brothers version in your head. Everyone right now right. is actually thinking the Doobie Brothers version. <laughs> but, now, but even, all they can do is think of yeah. It's it, it's it's because it's a it's a very simple song. Right. It's you know only got a handful of lyrics that are just repeated over and over and over again. So you hear those lyrics and you immediately think of the Doobie Brothers and their version. Yeah. But, uh, it's just great. It's, it's like great it's like version. Blackwater. I don't know how many versions of Blackwater are out there, but when you think of Blackwater, all you can think of is the Doobie Brothers version. No doubt. Very and that's good. and that's my five. That's a good list. I think it's actually a really good uh, 10 playlist. And who cares if there's one or two on a greatest hits? We had too many greatest hit minefields yeah. to avoid. We couldn't do it. We just decided to plow through. Yeah. We didn't, we didn't We didn't pick eight miles high or Mr. Tambourine Man, so leave us alone. Right. We stayed away from, well, I kind of did with the birdhouse stuff. So Yeah, but you yeah. know what? That doesn't count because it's, it doesn't, you throw in Crowded House and all of a sudden all bets are off because Crowded House is a great equalizer. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's true. Well, uh, if you thought this episode was for the birds, wait till you get to our next episode, which will be about the year 1996. Ah, good old 1996. And the music that we listened to in 1996. <laughs> good. Well, that will be our very next episode. So I hope you stick around for that. Uh, listeners, I, I know you'll stick around for that, Hammond. I hope the listeners do as well. If you want to get in touch with us, email us at soundographypodcast.com, uh, Gmail or soundographypodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter. We are at the soundography. Of course, our website, soundography.com, is where you're going to find all of our previous episodes, 128 of them. Uh, plus bonus episodes to be exact. And every playlist or every episode includes links to our sh- our, our playlist on Spotify, um, a link to where you can buy a recommended album. For this one, I'll probably pick a greatest hits album. <laughs> Something that has Shoot. anthology or complete works in it probably. Right, or essentials or, yeah. yeah, exactly. It's like shooting birds in a barrel. Um, but you'll find all that stuff over there at soundography.com. Plus, there's a great way to support the show. If you like us, support us with maybe a buck or two. It's all we ask. Patreon.com slash soundography is the way that you do that. And uh, of course, if you love the show, leave us a review so other people can find it as well. And uh, uh, whether you get your show on Stitcher, iTunes, Apple Music, uh, you can now get it on Amazon Music. Just tell your Echo device you want to hear the latest episode out, uh, episode of Soundography. Really? And I... I think she'll do that. Yeah, I haven't tried it. Try it because I don't. I haven't gotten it to work. Yeah. So if you want to hear our show on your Amazon device, just say your Amazon device's female name, followed by "Play the latest episode of Soundography: A Crash Course in Music, One Band at a Time," and she'll play our most recent episode. Why do we have to say all that? Only Jeff Bezos knows. But <laughs> but you know what? He wrote a giant penis to space. So guess what? He did. And he's not telling. Nope. Uh, so there you go. That's how you can listen to us on your Amazon Echo devices. We'll be back next week with another episode of the show venturing in, like I said, to 1996. So on behalf of Hammond Chamberlain, this is Brandon Bitt saying that just about covers it for soundography. And I'll do this about once per <laughs> season. Part of the Frog Pants Network. Get more at frogpants.com.